Our text this morning is probably a familiar text to many of you, Mark chapter 4. Um, and I, I read and teach primarily from the New American Standard Bible. Um, the most immediate and tangible fruit of my salvation was the peace of God and is the peace of God that I continue in my life. It was, it was, it was almost an, an immediate change in my life, although I, I, I still have to, to work in, in that inner mind, in that inner heart to place my affections in the right place upon Jesus. But the peace that I have in Christ is probably the most obvious and tangible evidence of my salvation and has been probably one of the biggest encouragements in my life as a Christian and in the lives of those who know me and were part of that process as I've been growing in the Lord now for, for the decades I've known Jesus. And over the years, I've grown more fond and desirous of that peace, more uh, no, just noticing that peace, like, man, thank you, God, that I'm experiencing peace right now. God's peace really does surpass all understanding. And, and I'm, I'm saying that just as a way to bear witness to it in my own personal life. And I noticed recently that I've been praying for peace more than I ever have before. Um, I've really kind of been fixated on it in a, in a way. I think, first of all, this COVID season has brought, you know, some confusion, some fear, some loss, some division, uh, some anger in people that I know and and in uh, relationships and situations that I've been a part of. There's a real need for the peace of God upon people in this season. This last year of of politics and elections and 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 the way things are kind of washing out now, it's it, we need to be praying for peace. I have this unction to be praying for peace. On top of all that, last month, um, for the last several months, my niece, who lives in, in Vancouver, Canada, she's been in and out of Children's Hospital. They still don't know what's wrong with her. It's getting very grave. My sister's been spending just weeks at a time in Children's Hospital. In the midst of all of that, my sister, who's been living in this hospital, is diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I'm, I'm thinking on Halloween week, just crying out to God, And I found myself crying out for peace. Peace for my little sister. Peace for my family that I can't even, I can't even visit and support in a physical way. Church, our families, our neighborhood communities, our state, our nation, the nations need peace. But they need a peace that is specific to the Lord. They need a peace that that surpasses understanding. God's peace does not require everything around us to fall perfectly into place. God's peace does not require my life to be lined up in such a way in order for me to have peace. The good news today is we can know real peace in pressing times. So this morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at true peace Peace in pressing times. Let's start in verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, his disciples, he said, let us go over to the other side. They're at the the Sea of Galilee, saying, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took him along, they took 
him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Verse 39, Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind dies down, and it became perfectly calm. And Jesus says to them, to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Church, this is the word of the Lord for his bride this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, as we open your word and we read your word, the desire of our heart is to see and to receive and to be enlightened to and to walk in and to grow in the presence and the purpose and the life of Jesus Christ. Show us Jesus today, Holy Spirit. Pray, God, that you would teach us by your Spirit. You would instruct us. That you would mature us. That you would correct us. That you would change us. And we pray all of this in the name of the one who can and does. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace in pressing times. Um, you may not know the name Horatio Spofford. Um, as, as a child, we would go to Camp Spofford, which was named after Horatio Spofford uh, growing up in New York. And um, uh, Horatio Spofford wa- wrote one of my favorite old hymns. He wrote that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, Spofford penned this hymn after a series of traumatic events. Um, in 1873, or excuse me, it was 1871, it was the year of the Great Chicago Fire, swept through the city of Chicago. It killed thousands, tens of thousands of people. Horatio Spofford lost his four-year-old son in the Great Fire of Chicago. He was a successful lawyer, Horatio was, and um, he had invested pretty much all of his money into properties in Chicago, which were destroyed by the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. And so his business propositions were bleak. In 1873, he'd planned a trip to England with his whole family. He had four remaining daughters and his wife, and he was going to go with D.L. Moody to England to support D.L. Moody's work of evangelizing in London and then throughout, throughout England. At the last minute, Horatio sent his family without him because of some zoning issues with the city of Chicago. He was trying to rebuild some of his property. On the way there, the ship they were in collided with another ship, and he lost all four of his daughters at sea. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, his wife sends a telegram back. She survives, of course. It's famous if you've ever read about Horatio Spofford. Simply said, I was saved alone. (laughs) Shortly afterwards, as Spofford traveled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as his ship passed over the spot 
where his daughters had drowned. And he penned these words in 1873. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spofford had peace in pressing times. Now I've tried to imagine the horror of his predicament. I too have five kids. I try to imagine the chaos of losing a child to fire and then two years later, losing four others to drowning. The disappointment, the devastation, the financial loss on top of that, the emotional terror of passing over the very place where your daughters drown in the sea, out to just go and be with your wife. I imagine a similarity here in Horatio Spofford's story, to the fear and uncertainty and the disappointment even that the disciples experienced that stormy night on the Sea of Galilee. Yet in the midst of the great tragedy at sea that Horatio Spofford had experienced with his daughters going down two years after his son perishing, we see Spofford at peace in Jesus while the disciples lose their grip and even their faith that day in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, it had been a long day. Jesus had been teaching all day and crowds had gathered on the shore. And this is that moment where so many people had gathered. Jesus got in a boat and they say they kind of let him off the shore just a little ways in this boat so he could teach to a larger group uh, that had amassed on, on land. And after this long, tiring day of preaching, Jesus instructs his disciples to take him to the other side of the lake. We don't know the reason why. Maybe Jesus needed some solitude away from the crowd. Uh, that was often his, his routine. He has a, had a pattern of, of being away with, the, with his father. Um, or maybe he felt it was time to chart some new ministerial territory. The other side of the Sea of Galilee would have been Gentile territory. It would have been the first time that he ventured into that territory. Whatever the reason, Jesus instructs the disciples to take him to the other side and his disciples obey him. Okay, we're going to get back to this later, but it's important for us to notice that the disciples obey Jesus, and so they set a course for the other side of the sea at Jesus's command. Now, the Sea of Galilee sits in northern Israel, and the sea itself is 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills and cliffs, and 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon. Okay, it's about 30 miles away, roughly, maybe, is is Ojai. Now, Mount Hermon sits at about 9,300, 9,200 feet. So you add that to the 700 feet below sea level of the Sea of Galilee, you've got a 10,000 foot elevation difference between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee. That would be like if Ojai was 10,000 feet high. So you imagine the winds that are coming down off a 10,000 foot peak down into the valley, in, in the great valley where the Sea of Galilee sits and the cold air coming down and the warm air coming up Any meteorologist would tell you it's a perfect recipe for a hurricane. That's the kind of storms, the storm that the disciples found themselves in. Mark describes that the apostle Mark describes this as a fierce storm. It was a mega storm. Now, it's important to remember that several of Jesus' disciples were experienced fishermen. These guys were pros. The Sea of Galilee had been their workplace for years. They made a living for themselves on this sea. 
So there are no foreigners to storms or strong waves. But this is different. This storm was different. These waves were different. They're, they're panicking in this storm. This storm was unlike anything they had experienced before. And I, I really believe that because here are these experienced fishermen and they're going to wake up the teacher, right? They're going to wake up the rabbi, the, the carpenter. Like, what's he going to do, right? Like, that, that's where these guys were at. That's how crazy the storm waves was. The storm was unlike anything they'd experienced before. High waves, it says, were breaking into the boat. Imagine the chaos of that moment, bailing water out just to see another, another wave coming over the side. Imagine the confusion that they felt wondering if their journey with Jesus was going to end at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee this night. Remember, these guys had dropped everything. For some of them, admittedly, it wasn't that much. But for all of them, it was their livelihood. They dropped everything to follow Jesus. He was supposed to be the Messiah, the promised one, the conquering lion, the one who had healed the withered hand, raised a paralyzed man, the one that drove out demons, the one who dined with disreputable sinners, the one who went toe-to-toe with religious leaders, the one who was going to restore the nation of Israel. He's the one who was going to sit upon the throne. And the disciples believed, right, because we, there, there are accounts of it, they believed they were going to be sitting at the right and the left hand of Jesus. And here, everything is in jeopardy. Everything is going down, and it's going down violently, and it's going down quickly. And Jesus is asleep. Even as their boat, and their hopes, and their dreams, and their ambitions are sinking, Jesus is sleeping. If you're a disciple, You've got to be dumbfounded at this point. Probably angry and confused. How can Jesus be calm when everything around us is sinking? That's the collective attitude on this boat right now. So here's the the contrast. I want to paint a contrast so you can feel the tension in this moment. Faced with a storm of unprecedented danger, the disciples assume a posture of panic. In the same storm, Jesus maintains a posture of peace. Remember, this whole thing is Jesus' plan. It was by Jesus' word that they were going to the other side of the sea. He's the one that said, hey, take me to the other side, and they obeyed him. That was his word. Jesus has been teaching them, you see, all through the beginning of the book of Mark and throughout all of the Gospels, he would talk about his word, that his word is as much a promise as it is a directive. And so Jesus' posture of peace in the storm is proof of his promise to the disciples. Jesus knew the storm they were heading into. He knew that they would get to the other side. Jesus both directed the storm and determined the destination. Now, long before Jesus silences the storm, he declares supremacy over the storm. How does he do that? Jesus declares his supremacy over the storm by sleeping. So often our attention is drawn to the power of Jesus and the things that Jesus does that we forget about his posture or we don't spend time noticing his posture. But if we really fix ourselves, really fix our mind and our heart, fix our attention on what Jesus does to the waves, what's going to happen is we're going to miss what Jesus does in the midst of the waves. And there's so much that we can learn from how Jesus positions and postures himself in the midst of life's storms. 
Because it feels like so much of my life is lived in the midst of a storm. Does anyone else ever feel that way? So much of life is lived in a storm. Jesus has peace. He is the calm in the chaos, even when others are not calm. Jesus is not surprised by storms. He's unfazed by storms. And not only do storms not surprise Jesus, Jesus actually guarantees. He promises storms. Listen to this. It's a, it, it can sound like a bit of a strange promise that Jesus makes in uh, John chapter 16, in the Gospel of John, verse 32. Jesus says, a time is coming, and in fact, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. Okay, he's he's talking about like quarantine here, like social distancing almost, like it kind of, it resonates with our time a little bit, right? A time is coming, in fact, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. And then he says, I've told you these things, so that in me, Jesus says, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the calm and the chaos. He is peace, even in pressing times. Jesus is confident in the destination. He's not surprised by the storm. Jesus isn't panicking because there's a storm. Jesus isn't losing sleep over a storm. Why? Because Jesus knows what he has promised. And he has promised the disciples the other side of the sea. Listen, Jesus promises us the other side of hardship. Remember, Jesus has overcome the world. He defeated sin, death, and the devil by going to the cross willingly, by offering up his life willingly, by going into the grave draped in my sin willingly. By raising himself in new life, leaving my sin in the grave, willingly, powerfully demonstrating the authority and the love of God over sin, death, and the devil. Jesus is a conqueror. He promises the disciples the other side of the lake. He promises us the other side of hardship. And Jesus is true to his word. Listen, Jesus promises us the other side of COVID, though it may not be comfortable, though there will be trials and hardship. He promises us the other side of financial hardship. Jesus Jesus promises us the other side of suffering. He promises us the other side of brokenness. Jesus promises us the other side of hard relationships. And so while we will have troubles, Jesus promises, Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus doesn't lose his calm in the midst of life's chaos. This means that we can have confidence even in pressing chaotic times. Again, this doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean that there won't be damage. It doesn't mean that there won't be fallout or even tragedy. But it does, it does mean that Jesus will lead us through the storm. And sometimes Jesus directs us into the storm, but he is always confident of the destination. And the peaceful posture of Jesus, it should have been a clue for the disciples, right? These guys had lived a lot of life with Jesus by this point. But instead, his peaceful posture became a cause for concern. They were worried that Jesus wasn't freaking out like they were. 
And now you, you, you know that because you hear the severity of their concern and the way they wake up Jesus, okay? This is how they wake up Jesus. This is uh, verse 38. Teacher, the disciples shouted at Jesus. Okay, they would have used the Hebrew word for rabbi. Rabbi, do you not care that we're perishing, right? I mean, who wakes someone up that way, right? Do you not care that we're dying, you know? Like, what kind of a question is that? This wake-up call is an angry rebuke, right? Specifically, it's a rebuke of Jesus' character. And here's the logic behind the rebuke. I mean, I, I, I get, I'll admit, I get it. The disciples are saying, Jesus, there's a storm, okay? And it's big. And unless you help us, we're all going to die. And that's going to happen really soon. But you're not doing anything about it because you're not freaking out like we are. You're asleep. Therefore, you must not care about us. This is an outright assault on Jesus's character by men who should have known Jesus better. Now, before I, before I bring some resolution to that kind of weird moment, I, I want to I be honest with you and ask an honest question. How many of us have felt that way in life? To my shame, right? When we face an upending in our life during this season of COVID even, so many things upended in our lives. Our income, our, our personal freedom even seems under attack at times. I'll admit that it can be easy to feel just like the disciples did, right? Jesus, don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? Don't you see what's going on here? Don't you see that my income is in jeopardy? Don't you see that my ability to provide for my family is on the line? Don't you see I can barely provide for with, even with food? Don't you see my 401k shrinking right now? Jesus, don't you see that I might have to fire some really wonderful, good employees that have worked for me for a long time? Jesus, don't you see that I'm lonely? Don't you see that I'm isolated? Jesus, don't you see that my niece, don't you see that my little sister might die in a hospital? I may never get to see her again. Don't you see, Jesus, that I'm suffering? And it's easy for us sometimes in our flesh, caught up in our emotion to come to the conclusion like the disciples did, you must not care. Because if you did care, surely you would wake up and help me. Surely I would not be perishing. So the disciples were forming an understanding. Please excuse me. They're forming an understanding of God's character in this moment. We call that a a theology, an understanding of God. They're forming a theology here with, with the way they're talking to Jesus. And it's a bad theology. This is a theology of God's character that's based on their understanding from their perspective in the midst of a current situation. They have a desired outcome that they want to see happen and they're in the middle of a storm and Jesus isn't bringing them to their desired outcome. Therefore, God is not good. The the disciples are are, are getting into some dangerous theological water here. Now, Listen, there's nothing wrong with their perception of the storm. It was a nasty storm. And the disciples were certainly qualified to diagnose that, right? They were experienced. The storm was a threat to their very existence. They're right about that. But what the disciples got wrong that night on the Sea of Galilee, and this is what I think we have a tendency, if we're not very careful and cautious, we can get wrong too, is their perception of Jesus. We're all very clear about what the storms are in life. But in the midst of the storm, sometimes we become unclear about the character of Jesus. They were acutely aware of what they faced, but they were hopelessly unaware of who was in the boat with them that night. 
We see this in the name that they choose to address Jesus with, right? They say, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown, right? Rabbi, don't you care that we're perishing? Listen, there was not a teacher in that boat with them that night. There wasn't a rabbi in the boat with them that night. Who was in the boat with them that night? The Lord was in the boat with them that night. Who in Genesis chapter one, the Lord hovered over the deep and said, let there be light. And then right after that raises land out of the depths of the ocean. The Lord, who in Exodus 14, turns the depths of the Red Sea into a highway for the Israelites, who in Isaiah 40 has measured the in the palm of his hand, has measured the seas of the earth. The Lord was in the boat, who in Psalm 89, it says he rules the raging sea. And then in Psalm 65, it says he stills the roaring sea, the roaring of the waves and the chaos of the people. That who was in the boat is who was in the boat with the disciples that night. The Lord was in the boat not a teacher. The Lord was with the disciples in that storm of Galilee. And listen, Reality Carpinteria, he is the same Lord who is with you today in your storm. The Lord is with you. Just like the disciples, we would benefit today by remembering that Jesus, the beginning And the end, the author and the finisher, the Prince of Peace, Jesus is with us in our boat today. Now, it might feel at times like he's asleep, right? Remember, when we have a goal and we're in a storm and it doesn't seem like things are going toward our goal, we'd be like, what are you doing, sleeping, Jesus? Don't you even care? Listen, Jesus is at peace in the storm for sure, but he's not absent. This is a wonderful reassurance for us. The Lord is not absent. Notice that Jesus is not simply acting calm in the storm. Jesus is the calm in the storm. Jesus is the peace in this pressing time. And his very presence is every drop of peace that was necessary to withstand the storm. I love how Mark sets up Jesus' response to the disciples, okay? Because they've, they've just rebuked him and, and made a character call here. Basically questioning Jesus' care and concern for them, rebuking him. And Jesus offers his own rebuke, doesn't he? But he doesn't rebuke the disciples. He rebukes the storm. Look at verse 39. It says, Jesus got up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. So they're like, Jesus, wake up. Just just imagine that. You're waking me up. And I, I open my eyes and they're like, don't you care? We're dying. And Jesus gets up, turns his back from those guys, and he rebukes the wind. He rebukes the waves. He says, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. Literally translated, Jesus says to the waves, be still and keep being still. That's the tense of the verb he uses. The Greek word that he uses actually invokes the idea of putting a muzzle on a dog. Jesus muzzles the storm. Literally, Jesus is like, shut up. Shut up and stay quiet. He demonstrates supreme and authoritative control over something that no person could ever dream of controlling. But Jesus' calming of the storm was just as much a demonstration of his care as it was a demonstration of his control. In rebuking the storm, Jesus isn't just saying, hey, look at how much I can do for you. Jesus is saying to the disciples, look how much I care for you. And I think in this text, there can be a temptation for us to wrongly appropriate this story to our lives in certain ways. 
Like, for example, it might seem like the moral of the story here is that if we cry out to Jesus, then he will respond by silencing the chaos in our life. Or that Jesus will swoop in and rescue us from all of life's pressing times. But listen, as many of us have experienced in life, this is not always the case. We cry out to God and the storm around us often continues to rage. Maybe you've done that even in this season, cried out to God, and it feels like nothing around you is changing. Maybe the pressing times continue to swirl around you. But listen, and this is what Jesus was getting at in his his interaction with the disciple. There is another storm at play. There's the storm around us in this story, but there's also the storm within us. And Jesus is far more concerned with the storm within us than he is the storms around us. Notice the first thing that he says to the disciples after calming the storm. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, at first, this can seem almost harsh, like he's annoyed or, or, or frustrated or angry, but, but he's not. With this question, Jesus is really zeroing in on the heart of the matter, which is the heart of the disciples. And he's connecting the storm around them to the storm within them. And he's addressing the waves of fear within them and the winds of doubt within them that are swaying their trust away from them. There was a storm outside of them that they had invited in to swirl within them. And their inner storm had led them into bad theology, into a bad understanding of who Jesus was. Jesus isn't delivering on what I want, so Jesus must not be good. So I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to seek like-minded people rather than the counsel of God. Don't we do that when we get sucked into the storm and our eyes get taken off of Jesus? Pressing times had swayed their understanding of who Jesus was, had swayed their faith. The chaos around them had affected their understanding of his goodness. The pressing times, the urgency of the moment had skewed their perception of his care. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples, and in church I believe he's communicating to us through his word today, is that if Jesus can calm the chaos of the raging sea of Galilee, that he can calm the chaos inside of me. Jesus was able to rightly center the disciples' hearts upon him, to correct their theology. If Jesus can say to the waves, be still, then Jesus today can say to your, fi- your fear, be still and stay still. If Jesus can say to the wind, silence, Jesus can shut up the lies in my head. Thank you, Lord. If Jesus can bring calm to the storms around us, Jesus can bring peace to the storms inside of us. And what's interesting is that this story doesn't end fearlessly. Okay, it's not a, it's not a, a hand-drawn Disney animation film where it's like, oh, everyone's happy at the end. It, 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 it ends kind of fearfully. Let's look at verse 41. It says, they, talking about the disciples, the disciples became very much afraid. That's NASB language for what the, the New Living Translation says. The disciples were absolutely terrified. I love that translation of that verse. The disciples were absolutely terrified, right? And, and, and I love it. You hear it in their questions. They're like, who is this man? Who is this guy? They ask each other. Even the wind and the waves 
obey him. The disciples were afraid of the storm. But once they saw Jesus for who he is, they were absolutely terrified of Jesus after he rebukes the storm and the weather obeys him. And this is actually a good thing. This is a, this is a place where Jesus brings his disciples intentionally. He brought them into a, a, a storm at sea so that he could silence the storm of doubt within them. They needed to see Jesus for who he is. They needed to know that Jesus was with them and that he's more powerful than the storms around them. They needed to see that Jesus, who's more powerful than the storms around them, that Jesus is for them. They needed to see that the one with the power to control the chaos cares for their souls. Jesus teaches them this and shows them this at night in a hurricane. They needed to know that Jesus brings peace in pressing times. Jesus brings calm even in chaos. Friends, Jesus is more frightening than the storm. And the good news for Christians is that Jesus, the one who's more terrifying than the storm, he is for you. The one who makes coronavirus cower, he is for you. The one who makes financial recessions and financial hardship. The one one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The one who has overcome our fear of financial loss. He is for you. The one who makes death itself despair. Loves you more than you will ever know. The disciples' fear of the storm led them to woe and worry in the midst of chaos. But their fear of Jesus leads them to worship. Fear of the storm is rooted in bad theology. When we're in the midst of the storm and we're afraid of the storm, that breeds uncertainty in our life. And uncertainty leads to worry and it leads to doubt. And it leads to bad theology, a bad understanding of who Jesus is. But fear of Jesus is rooted in the certainty of his power, which leads us to worship, not to worry. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? When we turn our attention from the storm to the Savior, our woe turns to worship. Our chaos turns to calm. Our pressing times turn to peace. Our mourning turns into rejoicing. Our despair turns into dancing. The ashes of sorrow turn into a beautiful song of praise, even in the midst of chaos. In Jesus, we have peace in pressing times. Church, let's turn our attention to Jesus today. Let's look in wonder at the one who says to the storms around us, be silenced. The one who can look to the storm within you and say, shut up. Who can hold the lies of Satan back. Who can rebuke the things that are said to you to tear you down and and to, to lower your esteem of yourself, and to lower your esteem of others. That is from the devil. Jesus can silence. He can muzzle that storm. Jesus is the muzzler of lies. Church, let's lift our voice to the one who says to our fear and our doubt, be still. Remember today, Jesus is with you the sovereign almighty God, the one who holds every sea in the palm of his hand. Jesus is with you and he's for you. Jesus is, church, Jesus is your peace 
even in pressing times. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, you are faithful to every generation. Thank you, Lord, that we get to experience that character of yours, your faithfulness. We pray now, God, that as we've we've heard your word and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister the truth of your word to our hearts, that it would really percolate down in. I pray today that the storm of fear would be silenced. I pray now as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we choose to turn from woe to worship, that Jesus, you would be high and exalted, not just vocally out in this parking lot, but in our hearts and in our lives and in the spiritual realm of our families and our communities. Jesus, be high and lifted up in our hearts, in our marriages. Be high and lifted up in this church family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.